There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. Oh, what a day, glorious day that will be. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. Oh, what a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more birds to bear no more sickness no pain no more parting over there and forever I will be with the one who died for me oh, what a day glorious day that will be oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see And I look upon his face The one who saved me by his grace When he takes me by the hand And leads me through the promised land What a day, glorious day that will be Well, go ahead and take your Bible tonight. Turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. Of course, we're still, uh, we're kind of in that Easter season, and um, I thought we would turn to a passage, probably the only passage in the entire Bible that uses the word Easter. You know, we celebrate Easter, but there's only one place in the entire Bible where the word is used. And so I thought I'd look at that today a little bit, and uh, boy, what a tremendous truth as we consider uh, well, I'm going to give you some background, basically, and try to share a little bit about the passage and then make just a, a brief application, just a thought tonight that I think is helpful and needful. And uh, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through the first four verses, and then we'll kind of address those, and then we'll move on to 5 through 11, and that's where we'll kind of pick up with our uh, thought tonight. <clears throat> but... Let's go ahead and have a very quick word of prayer. Father, bless our time in the Word of God. We thank you for the wonderful truths and the, just the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, we're so thankful that the Word of God expresses and explains to us uh, literally what life is about and, Lord, how to ultimately spend an eternity with you. Lord, again, as was mentioned, we do pray for the children and uh, young people that are assembled. We pray that, Lord, their hearts would be stirred tonight. If any of them have yet to receive Christ, we pray that they would indeed do so. And Father, may you just encourage the believers, and Father, bless them. And Lord, help us today. I need you. Fill me with your Holy Ghost. I'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 
Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. His disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears. Excuse me, I'm in the book of Matthew. I'm turning to Acts now. Did I tell you Acts? Of course I did. Oh boy, I'll tell you what. Minds are everywhere tonight, right? I mean, there's a lot going on in the world these days. Uh, Acts chapter 12. Here I go. Let me see if I can get it right. Now about the time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. There were the days, these were the, then were the days of unleavened bread. When he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternarians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. <clears throat> There's that word Easter. You know, we talk about Easter a lot around here, you know, especially once a year. And, uh, you know, the world, actually, all the United States, we, we em- emphasize it and talk about it, but it's only used one time in the entire Bible, and you just read it, you just saw it for yourself. But the Bible goes on right at the beginning in Acts chapter 12. It says, now about that time, Herod. It says, now about that time. Well, what time? About what time is he talking about here? Well, turn back to Acts chapter 11 and just look back at Acts 11 verse 27. The Bible says, And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that he should be great, that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here we see that there's a time in in history here, at least in the past, where this prophet by the name of Agabus says, listen, there's going to be a great dearth in the land. And a dearth was a famine or a a, a time of great need. And uh, here we now have the situation here where uh, it's about this time that Herod now stretches forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And I just got thinking, and I don't know how true this is. I don't even know if it's true at all, to be honest with you. But it could it be that in the midst of this dearth, this famine, this great need that affected the whole empire, could it be that this was a perfect backdrop for Herod's attack on the Christians? I mean, I mean could, it, could he have blamed them for this crisis? Could he have said, you know, well, you know these Christians, it's because of them. You know, they're just, they're a mess. Remember, that's what would happen later on in AD, uh, 60, AD 70, whenever the, or AD 64, excuse me, when, when, the, uh, um, when Rome was burned down. <clears throat> The uh, emperor would say, it was the Christians that did it. It's the Christians that started this mess. They're the ones that burned the city down. And of course, uh, great persecution followed that as well. But I wonder if maybe he used this crisis as a reason and a means to kick things off, to kind of maybe say, you know what, I think we can pull this off pretty easily. And you know what? He did. And I think that he viewed Christians, obviously, as very defenseless. They were defenseless nobodies, really. And they were safe targets to attack. No doubt about that. And they were attacking Christians consistently in, the, uh, in Rome. They were attacking them. Even the, uh, the Jews themselves were attacking. 
And so we see here that this, uh, about this time, about that time, right around that time of history, now we have this attack coming toward the Christians and uh, Herod using it, I believe, as a tool. In verse 2, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James and John, of course, were the sons of Zebedee. We read about them in the New Testament. They were among the first of the Lord's disciples. When we read about that early on in the book of Matthew or John, you're reading about these two fellows, uh, James and John. James was the first of the apostles to suffer martyrdom. Not, not the first to suffer martyrdom, but the first apostle to suffer martyrdom. And then you have, uh, you know, uh, I mean, James uh, and John. Remember, if, if you remember correctly, when it came time for Jesus, you know, right before he would ultimately go to the cross, him, uh, James, and their mom got together with Jesus, remember? And they're like, hey, hey, uh, hey, uh, Jesus. Uh, you know, James' mom, James' mom, like, hey, do you think my two sons could, could have, like, like, really prominent positions in the kingdom? Could they be seated at your left and your right, you know? Could they have the best seats in the house, so to speak? Could they rule with you and be recognized as top rulers along with you in this new uh, regime, this new kingdom that you're going to rule over? Uh, that happened in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22. And, boy, the, the Lord, he... Um, he kind of set them straight. Um, he said, basically, you guys, you know, you, you can't drink of the cup that I'm drinking of. And they said, oh, yes, we can. And he said, okay, all right, very good. And we know that ultimately they did then, didn't they? They knew a little bit about suffering, didn't they? And they went through a lot of that. Now, again, James was the first. John was the last. John was the last of the apostles to head, head for home, if you will, under the harsh hand of Rome. And so we see here in the first couple of verses some things shaping up. Again, James has been killed now, the brother of John. He's killed with the sword. He was beheaded, it sounds like, is what it, what it seems like to me. And in verse 3, he goes on, he goes on to say, And because he saw it pleased the Jews, Herod that is, he proceeded further to take Peter also. So this is kind of a commentary on the Jews as much as it is Herod. I mean, the Jews had clearly chosen to reject Jesus Christ. That was a decision that would ultimately bring their nation to its knees or ultimately shipwreck that nation within 30 years. You don't disregard God. You don't put the Lord Jesus Christ on a shelf. You don't just simply reject him as Lord, Savior, and even Creator and think that it's going to go well with you and even your nation. And so 30 years later, they're in trouble. We talked about it a little bit. 70 AD, of course, they go, I mean, they're just dispersed throughout the world. It's a mess. Over a million Jews died in Jerusalem just when, when Herod attacked Jerusalem. Or when, when not Herod, but whenever uh, the Roman Empire attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so we see that that was a mess. Now, for Herod, he was kind of testing the waters at the same time. We see here, he's testing the waters. He's trying to find out, uh, you know, which way the wind was blowing. And he set out to do even more damage to the body of Christ as a result of saying, you know what, seems like I can get away with this. Man, I killed James, and man, a lot of the Jews were pretty happy about that. Hey, they seemed pretty on board with that. So, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to go after another leader. I'm going to go after Peter. I mean, he's the recognized leader of the apostles, and since I got away with killing James and everybody seems to be okay with it, I'm going to go after Peter now. And so, the Jews seem to have taken great satisfaction in the fact that he took James and, and killed him, and... Uh, 
I mean, why not Peter, right? I mean, why wouldn't he go after Peter? And why wouldn't the Jews be happy about it? I mean, Peter's the one that defied, or, uh, defied the Sanhedrin. Remember, they ordered him. They ordered him to never preach Christ or Christ resurrected. Well, he didn't listen to him. He disregarded that. He, and, 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 you know, he, and then he turns around and he, established, he, he disregarded an established practice that the Jews had concerning the Gentiles. Jews didn't mess around with Gentiles. Jews didn't have any interaction with Gentiles. Jews felt themselves to be better than the Gentiles. And as a result of that, Peter said, you know what? I offered them a hand of fellowship. I, I'm telling you that there's been a new, a change in things. Where here in that Old Testament, God was dealing primarily with the Jew. Now in the New Testament, he's dealing primarily with the Gentile. And Peter says, listen, those Gentiles are being saved the same way we are. Over in Cornelius' house, chapter 10 of the book of Acts, he says, I remember whenever they received Christ. Because when they received Christ, they received tongues just like we did. And when they received those tongues just like we did, they spoke in tongues just like we did. Once again, a sign for the Jew. And Peter's saying, so the Gentile can be saved like the Jew, and the Gentile should be received into fellowship then. Boy, I'll tell you what, that gave a lot of, a lot of uh, brought a lot of problems between the Jews and Peter and, and others that were trying to push this new agenda or this new truth that the, the body of Christ was one, Jew and Gentile. And boy, I'll tell you what, uh, the Jews got on board with killing Peter too. They didn't have a problem with that. So Herod, he thinks he's got it going now. We're in good shape. And then three, the Bible says, these were the days of unleavened bread. Or excuse me, then were the days of unleavened bread. Now the Feast of Unleavened uh, Bread lasted for a whole week. And it would kick off with the, what was called the Passover. So there was a week of unleavened bread, but at the beginning of it was the Passover. Now that Passover, as you even see in, in chapter 4, if we take the time to go to 4, we're going to see that in verse 4 that word Easter is used. Well, the word refers to the Passover. That's what the word Easter refers to. The word that's used there was translated Easter, but it, it, it refers to the Passover. So it's not like Easter as we understand Easter. You know what I mean? It's not like they were, they, they were recognizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sundays. They didn't do that. That hadn't even started. That wasn't even an issue at all. It wasn't celebrated on Sunday, as a matter of fact. Rather, it was whatever day it landed on on the calendar. But it was a Jewish thing, a, the Passover. And so that's where this word Easter is used. And, and again, it's not quite as we would understand it. It doesn't work the way we know it to work. And uh, Easter is something that, you know, came long after uh, that was written. And so, you know, just, just so you know. But that's the only place Easter is used in the entire Bible. Well, so Herod, Herod we know, in verse 3, the Bible tells us that, that because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And then were the days of unleavened bread, and he starts to share this information. He intended to keep Peter imprisoned during that particular period, and that he basically was waiting till after the Passover to kill him. Yeah, we're going to kill him, but we're going to have to wait till after Easter, <laughs> the Passover. Okay, so anyway, that was his intention. So can you imagine Peter waiting around? I mean, Peter's waiting around now for a week. He knows his life's in danger. He knows that people aren't real happy with him. And he knows that uh, it's going to be, I mean, his days are numbered. And here he is. I mean, Peter's a man of action. And here he is now able to do nothing. He's imprisoned. He's locked up. 
He's under lock and keys, chained up even. The Bible tells us in verse 4 that he's basically in a maximum security prison. We're told that he was guarded by 16 soldiers. He had two chains. There was a keeper. There was an iron gate. There were two wards between him and freedom. Herod didn't want to take any chances on his prisoner escaping. We know that Peter had had a number of sympathizers, I'm sure, people that really thought, Peter knows Peter's a really a good guy, and Peter, he's preaching the truth. And so there were others that agreed with possibly the doctrine of Peter. We know there were Christians that had been, uh, people that had come to Christ. And so Peter now, he's got some people that would probably, you know, pretty zealous about his, uh, his character and would say, no, he doesn't deserve to be in prison. And boy, Herod didn't want to take any chances on losing Peter. And so he locked him up big time. He wanted to discourage any rescue attempts and keep people from trying even. So Herod had planned on executing Peter after Easter. And uh, then we pick up in Acts chapter 12, verse 5 through 11. And what we're going to find is that the church, because of time, I'm going to move right past some of this. But we're seeing verse 5, we're seeing unceasing prayer. The church prayed, the church prayed and prayed and prayed. For Peter, unceasing. They cease not to pray, the Bible tells us. Then we see these unbreakable chains. Peter's in prison and he is, in, he is chained up. He is, be, is secured. There's no doubt he is safe inside that prison, if you will, not from death ultimately, but safe from being rescued. And those chains were unbreakable, at least from the standpoint of human, human, humanly speaking. We see in verse 7 through 10, the unexpected escape. Interestingly enough, we read there in chapter 12 that, Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side. It doesn't mean he's like, oh, wow, <laughs> that was loud, wasn't it? Wow. There's going to be, wow, that's something. I would have never thought something that big could come out of something that little. That was amazing. Good for you, brother. Way to go. You're doing something right with that kid. All right, so good. <clears throat> All right, so anyway... That was amazing. So, so we see here in chapter uh, 12 again, verse 7, and he smote him. It means he kind of, he, like, you know, have you ever been, you know, wake up, you know, and you kind of push him, wake up. That's what he's talking about there. The angel's doing that to Peter. And he raised him up saying, arise up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said unto him, gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And he did so. And he said unto him, cast thy garment about thee and follow me. Boy, I'll tell you what, he followed him all right. And uh, boy, he went right on out of the prison eventually. And, and there's Peter. He's like, wow, this is amazing. So not only did we see the unceasing prayer, but we saw what appeared to be unbreakable chains. And now an unexpected escape. And finally, an undeniable miracle. This was not something that, I mean, they, they didn't get a, a, you know, a, a, a bunch of troops together and go in and do a, a, you know, a seek and destroy mission. They didn't come in and, and you know, steal him out of the prison. No, I mean, the Lord supernaturally delivered Peter. Undeniable miracle. And so as we go along here, and again, I, I'm telling you, kind of giving you a lot of background in the passage, but the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.12, and, and I kind of want to get into my thought now, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. God was watching what Herod Agrippa was doing to his people. He was watching all of this. He, he knew that Herod had captured 
James. He knew that he had ultimately beheaded James. He understood that Peter was awaiting execution. He knew all of this. You know that Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who ordered the Bethlehem children to be murdered. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas. That was the one who, of course, beheaded John the Baptist. I mean, he was a chip off the old block when it came to being ruthless and ultimately murderous. Herod was not a kind gentleman. He was not a nice guy. He and his family were understandably hated and despised by the Jews. And Herod knew this. So he persecuted the church in order to win over the Jews. How do you win over your enemies? By having a common enemy. And in this case, it was the Jews. Excuse me. Uh, that was the, the church. So most of the Jews had little or no patience for anyone who had anything to do with those Gentiles, as we talked about earlier. These folks were visibly happy with the steps that Herod had taken to persecute the church. And so Herod begins to arrest several believers. And among them was James, as we said, and now we see him taking Peter. And others, ultimately, is what he would ultimately do. What a mess. Here's the thought. God permitted Herod to arrest James. God permitted Herod to arrest Peter. He also allowed James to be beheaded. And on the other hand, he supernaturally freed Peter. So here's the question. Why was James allowed to die while Peter was rescued? And again, I, I kind of went through all of that. I just want to get the background. But when I, when I was reading through it, I, I guess come to this thought. Okay, how's come, how's come James dies, Peter lives? I mean, who decides this? I mean, when you look at both of them, they both were dedicated servants of God. They, they were needed by the church. Each of them played a significant role in the, 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 the church. Both had served faithfully. Both had suffered patiently. Both had sacrificed persistently. Oh, I mean, oh yeah, but uh, Peter, I mean, yeah, but what about James? I mean, the Bible tells us that, that the church was growing consistently and constantly in Jerusalem, so much so that eventually, because they were all staying in Jerusalem, we know that God ultimately sent persecution so they would disperse throughout. I mean, James was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. There are some that claim that the church at Jerusalem had grown to 50,000 people. I mean, this was a man that was impacting and influencing Christianity early on. No, listen, Peter and James, both of them had a tremendous impact in the early church. Both of them played significant roles in Christianity. So why in the world does God, or why in the world, who decides who lives and who dies? Why James? Why Peter? 
Now we could view the landscape of those times. We could look at the places and the things and the people and everything else. We can surmise and come up with all kinds of reasons why we believe that God uh, uh, you know, allowed James to pass but kept Peter on the scene and we can come up with reasons, all the reasons we want, but in the end, none of those necessarily would be true at all. The only answer as to why James died and Peter lived is the sovereign will of God. That was the very thing that Peter and the church had prayed about after Peter and John had been arrested and threatened for preaching the name of Christ and ultimately let go. But watch here. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 24. But there's got to be a reason that we can point to. There's got to be a reason that we can put our finger on, preacher. No, there doesn't. There doesn't have to be any reason other than the fact that this is how God wanted it. And again, this is a tough pill to swallow at times in our lives. But it is a reality. Look at what's going on here in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And again, we're going to see again that Peter and John had been arrested. They'd been threatened for preaching. They finally let go. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hath made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is them in that in them is, who by the mouth of, the, of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever Thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the, thy holy child Jesus. Notice again that he said, they said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Okay, they've been threatened. We know down the road they're going to be beaten even. But they have come to this conclusion. You are God. You created all things. And you know what, God? For to do, you, you put all this in place. Everything that transpired, everything that's happened, whether it was the crucifixion of Christ himself, whether it was the resurrection, whether it was Pentecost, or, or even in these cases where the, the people of God are being persecuted, God, you've orchestrated it all for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. And Lord, all we're asking you to do is this. Have your will and way. And as they threaten us, may we stand boldly and proclaim your truth and give us great power that we might perform these, these signs and wonders that, Father, your Son may be elevated, exalted, and magnified. See, those in charge in this world may possess a sense of power on earth. 
but their power is tempered and even used by God to fulfill His will and plan. Herod had stretched forth his hand to destroy the church. But God would stretch forth his hand to perform signs and wonders and glorify his son. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. He said, listen, and, and, and now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. God allowed Herod to kill James. That's all there is to it. Now we can go ahead and we can try all we can to understand it. We don't always understand the whys. But we know the who. It's God. And he's always on time. Whether we understand that or not. But yet the same God that allowed Herod to kill James also kept Herod from harming Peter. See, it was the throne in heaven that was in control, not the throne on earth. God does not take great pleasure in watching his children suffer. No, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. That's not the issue here. But there is not one thing that happens to us in our life that God doesn't permit. I don't understand why he allows people to get sick. I don't know why he allows good people to pass early on. I don't know why he allows others to be hurt and harmed by evil, wicked men. I don't get it always. I don't understand it all. But what I do know is that God is still God. And he is sovereign. And it, the only way you can define or explain some things is to say that God permitted it. And this is his will, obviously, because nothing happens that he doesn't put his stamp of approval on some way, somehow. He does not agree with what evil men are doing to people in this world. He doesn't agree with it, but he allows it to happen at times, but he always only allows it to happen because in the end it glorifies him and in the end provides great treasure for those who have yielded to him and allowed him to use them in even a very difficult time. We don't have the answers. We don't know all the whys. And that truth may not bring comfort like we'd like it to at first, but it, if we will be patient, if we will give God time to work, both on this side and on the other side of eternity, God will be proven just, and he will be proven good. We know he is from his word, but he will be proven just and good too. It's good to know that. It's good to know that no matter how difficult I should say the trials or how disappointing the news, God is still on the throne and has everything under control. He really does. We may not always understand his ways, but we know his sovereign will is best. You and I, most often, cannot see the forest for the trees. But God sees the forest better than anyone, and he is equally concerned about every tree 
as well. When we think about things from this perspective, we cannot forget about Jesus standing over Jerusalem and weeping for them to turn to him. There is a balance that comes. We must try to find that balance. But we will never understand the sovereignty of God at times. He is God. And His sovereign will is best. Psalm 2, 1-4, the Bible says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And we read about that just a little bit ago, didn't we? It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens, the Bible says, shall laugh. And the Lord shall have them in derision. May we allow God to be God and not fall into the trap of imagining a vain thing. You say, what vain or empty thing? That we could possibly know what's best in the long run more than God himself. That's a vain thing. To think we could know better than him. To think that we could orchestrate it better than he did. Our sight is so limited in this life. There comes a time we must simply trust him and lean on Him and not our own understanding. You can war with God, but you're going to lose. I can war with God and I'm going to lose. And His will may not always be pleasant, but it is always best. Let me ask you tonight, are you going through a hard time, a difficult time in your life? There are people all around us every day of the week that are. Maybe you've never experienced that yet. Maybe you've had some difficult times, but nothing like some people. But you know, probably, more than likely, down the road, if we live long enough, our day's coming. And if you've lived any life, you've experienced some of those times already. Will you allow God to be God? We hear about people, and hopefully we're not one of them, <laughs> that get angry at God and ultimately bitter toward Him because He did not do what we wanted Him to do. I can't tell you why God permitted Herod to take James and behead him. But on the other hand, take Peter and not let Herod do anything to harm him. I don't know why Peter got away when James didn't. Except that it's the sovereign will of God. And I have to come to the conclusion that God knows what's best. It's a lot easier for me to talk about James and Peter, though, than it is to have to deal with my own issues. That's when it gets real. That's when it gets tough. But we need to remember that our God is a sovereign God. 
And it is a vain thing when we start questioning him or somehow believing that we know better than he does. May we just let God be God. And if we have problems in our lives and we're facing a tough time, maybe we just need to come to him even tonight and say, Lord, I don't know why you're letting this happen, but you know what? I'm going to trust that you know best. I don't get it, but then again, I'm not you. Help me to trust you through it, no matter what. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for your grace in our lives. Lord, we are desperately in need of it. And Lord, we can't understand the hurt and the heartaches that sometimes we and others we love go through. But Father, we must, we must trust you. Allow you to be God and be willing to let you have your will and way in our lives too. We don't want to be bitter at you. We don't want our relationship with you to be affected negatively because we are imagining some vain things. Help us, Lord, to face the reality that you are God and that your sovereign will is best. We'll thank you. We'll praise you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every